0: Good morning, Bel Air. We've got many joining us, not only here, but also online and people listening after the fact. We have begun a season of arrival. It's that season. In fact, there's going to be more arrivals, I'd say, over the next 30 days and perhaps any 30-day stretch throughout the year. More arrivals at LAX, more people coming in. There's going to be more arrivals on your front doorstep. I know what you order. I've seen my neighbors in my own house. Boxes start stacking up in this season. There's more arrivals in our grocery stores, the specialty coffee shops. You see, there's arrivals of certain things throughout the year that that we look forward to. In fact, some of you have uh, friends and family, loved ones who will be arriving this season. Now, there's certain arrivals that we love. There's certain arrivals. Oh. It arrived again. That fruitcake. (laughs) Do you get those fruitcakes? The ones that you think were mailed in February? And they finally got here. It arrived again. Or have you ever had it where someone rings the doorbell and you open the door and you're like, oh. I didn't know you were arriving <laughs> this week. I thought it was next week. You see, when we're not looking forward to the arrival of certain things, we have no anticipation for them. And when they do arrive, we don't want to actively participate with them. You get that fruitcake and you just throw it right into a wrapped box to then re-gift it somewhere else. You don't throw it in the trash. No, 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 no. When that family member comes that you weren't wanting to come, to arrive, you're not anticipating, you you, you don't actively participate in conversations with them. You actually begin to walk for the first time in your life. Where'd they go? I don't know. They're out for a walk. Or you you get busy with chores that you've been putting off all year. You get busy. You turn on the TV. You don't watch TV, but when they're around, you're getting caught up on all your shows. You see certain arrivals we don't anticipate, nor do we actively want to participate in them, but some arrivals. We can't wait for them to come. We anticipate the arrival of these things. And I don't know if you're like me, but I look at the USPS and the UPS and the FedEx and all the things, and I, and I, and I look every single day at the tracking number, even though it says it's going to come Friday. Maybe it'll come Thursday. <laughs> Why do I do this? I'm anticipating these things or, or with family who are coming to town that I can't wait to see that I haven't seen in a long time. Or maybe it's your kids who have been away at college. You're anticipating their arrival back home for the first time the longest stretch they've ever been away. People that you haven't seen in a while, loved ones, you anticipate. You look at the, the numbers on the American Airlines, the United Numbers, online. You're, are they gonna, can they fly faster than can ever be flown before? You anticipate. But when they show up, those things, you actively want to participate with them. You're enjoying those things. You're, you're enjoying those people. You see, determining how much you value something will actually determine how much you anticipate it and will actually determine how much you will actively participate in enjoying it. What kind of price would you put on the peace of God? How much do you value that? You see, if you don't know what it is, or if you have maybe a partial view of what it is, you really won't realize how costly and valuable it really is. Therefore, you won't anticipate like you should or actively participate in it like you could. Well, the peace of God has arrived, and it is arriving, and it will arrive again. You see, the word advent literally means arrival. And over the next four weeks, we're going to take a look at this great peace of God. And it's a peace that is far beyond just an absence of war or an absence of violence. This word peace in the Hebrew is the word shalom. It literally means a holistic, overwhelming, thriving of goodness, of experiencing life as all it was intended. Well, the prophet Isaiah About 700 years before the birth of Christ, as God spoke through Isaiah, gave a little message, gave a heads up, it was almost like a text notification system, an email notification system, not when the peace of God would arrive, but how and what it would look like. And as we, over these next four weeks, take a look at the peace of God through the prophet Isaiah, we have Pastor Kim this week, myself next week, Pastor Mike the third week, and then Pastor on the fourth week, taking a look at four different angles at this deep and rich peace of God. And as we see its true value, my hope and my prayer is that we would enter this season with deeper anticipation and a deeper level to actively participate in this peace let us come. Let's pray. God, prepare our hearts and our minds for this moment as we hear from your word. God, we thank you for Pastor Kim and the work that she has prepared up into this moment. Her prayers, the work she has done. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would set her apart that you would anoint her words and that we would hear God, what you long for us to hear. God, we thank you for this time. Help us to understand this great gift that you have given. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Thanks, Drew. Well, as Drew just said, we're going to be spending the next four weeks looking at different passages in the book of Isaiah. So let's go right to the scripture this morning. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 597. We're going to be starting in Isaiah 54. Reading verses 9 and 10, Isaiah 54, verses 9 and 10, it's important to remember that these are the words of God spoken through His prophet. These are not mortal words, these are divine words. So hear the word of the Lord spoken through the prophet. Beginning in verse 9, God says, this is like the days of Noah to me. Just as I swore that the waters of Noah would never again go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. Thus says the Lord, who has compassion on you. This is the word of the Lord. have this memory. I think it's probably my earliest memory of when you know that that actually happened to you. The memory begins with me sinking in water, just sinking down and down deeper. And, and I can remember these air bubbles rising up, just kind of dancing up to the surface of the sun. And I remember how pretty they looked, just All these little bubbles, as they rose toward the surface, I could see the sun beyond the surface of the water. And just as I sank deeper and deeper, I was just so delighted at how pretty the sun looked on them. Suddenly, there was something that blotted out the sun. Something took flight above me and started diving toward me and took hold of me. And that was the very first moment that I was startled. This is the memory that I have of falling into the deep end of a pool when I was two years old and my dad jumping in to save me. Now, as I was sinking deeper and deeper and deeper, all I remember is peace, absolute calm. And and actually, what I remember even more is being so delighted by the beauty of those little air bubbles. Above the water from my mom and dad, There was no peace. There was mayhem. There was a sense of rising dread, a disorientation before they realized what happened. Both of these experiences of the same event were true at the same time. Sometimes I wonder why God just impressed that into my memory. Why I remember it so clearly, that clearing chlorine blue water the gold of the bubbles, the sense of peace. And I wonder if maybe he has me remember it because it was a snapshot of the nature of reality. On the surface, things seem desperately wrong. Something is amiss. Something is missing. There's a rising sense of panic and of fear that we need to urgently do something. But below the water, below the surface, there's this peace that stretches out, that holds delight in it, that focuses us on beauty, this peace that holds us and never lets us go. There's a song lyric that says, your grace abounds in deepest waters. And it's in Romans where Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That means that no matter how catastrophic, no matter how disastrous, no matter how horrible the events of this world or of your own life might get, that God's grace is always bigger. Always. This is what God calls his covenant of peace with us. It's His promise that is anchored in Him, His intention, and His purpose. Today, as we begin Advent together, this season of arrivals, what I want is for us to drop a stone into the depth of Scripture, and to let this stone drop deeply into human history, to go deeply into the healed wounds between God and humans down beyond what we can remember in history into this place where we need to gather around God's knees and ask Him to tell us the story again. Here today, as we begin Advent, we become aware of God's covenant of peace with us and how it binds us here in this sanctuary, here in Los Angeles, here in 21st America, how it binds us with Jewish exiles of 6th century BC and how we are all bound together with people of antediluvian days of Noah, that this covenant of peace has been anchored in God from the very beginning. In Isaiah 54, 9, we hear God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and God says, this is like the days of Noah to me. God says, this is like that. This being the context of 6th century Jerusalem when Isaiah was speaking and writing, when God said to him, you must speak these words that I give to my people. And that being Noah's day, almost prehistoric, almost beyond what we can remember, God says, this is like that. Now, in the midst of this, in the midst of Jerusalem, this rising panic as exiles have been seized and taken to Babylon, in the midst of this destruction, God says, you know what? That reminds me of Noah. Noah of all people. Now, first, as we come to this scripture in Isaiah, looking at verse 9, I just want to point out a few things. First of all, I think it's really important that we see that God speaks of Noah as a real person, and He speaks of the flood as a real event. There isn't anything mythical about Noah or the flood to God, and it's not so distant that it can't be remembered well. God seems to be able to remember it just like it was yesterday. This is what we call the truth of Scripture, witnessing to itself. Secondly, I think it's interesting that in the midst of this human despair, these Jewish exiles finding themselves in slavery in Babylon in the midst of this destruction that God does not say, oh, that reminds me of the flood. This destruction is like that destruction. No, God says, this reminds me of Noah. You see, God doesn't have his eyes on the dilemma as humans usually do on all of the chaos and mayhem, God has His eyes firmly on the solution. Before the first raindrop fell in the flood, Noah was on God's mind. God had already appointed Noah to be the means of salvation of humanity and of all creation. Noah was already on the scene and last, before we move on, I want to see that it's interesting that God calls the flood, the flood that He created, the flood that He calls forth, He calls it the waters of Noah. Now, if there was an earthquake right now, and I just happen to be standing here, we wouldn't call it the earthquake of Kim. If there was ever anything that we ought to call something of God, it seems like it ought to be the flood waters of God, but that's not what He says. God said it's the waters of Noah that won't cover the earth again. And somehow these scriptures imply that the destruction of the flood and the salvation placed in Noah are somehow entwined. That they're two parts of one thing and that we can't speak of them separately. So let's flip back to Genesis. Let's take a look at this person named Noah. Now this is on page four of your pew Bibles if you wanna go there. I'm looking first at Genesis chapter 5 beginning in verse 28. We hear when Lamech had lived for 182 years, he became the father of a son. He named him Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands. Now, do those words seem at all familiar to you? Is there any place before Genesis 5 that we've heard some, some talk about a curse and about toil and about work? It's in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, their sin against God, they are cursed. God curses the woman, the man, and the land. It's in Genesis 3 that God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. Toil and work are part of the curse of Adam and Eve. Yet it's here in Genesis 5 with the birth of Noah that we get an inkling that it seems God intends to reverse the curse. Now names are important in the Hebrew language, very important. It's not an accident that Noah is named Noah. It's actually very significant. Noah means rest and comfort. When Noah is born and it's pronounced that out of this one there will be relief from our work and from the toil of our hands, what it means that through the curse, peace, comfort and rest the words that we use to describe peace, that this is what is going to bring you through the curse. And as a matter of fact, as the floodwaters start to rise, it's peace that is going to be lifted up above them. Comfort and rest, peace that is in this person. And it's in Genesis 9, after the floodwaters have started to recede and earth has emerged, This whole new age of humanity is being birthed through Noah. God is very clear in saying to Noah that he has established a covenant with him. In Genesis 9, beginning in verse 11, this is God speaking to Noah. He says, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. That's you and me, all future generations. God says, I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. This covenant that God makes with Noah is the covenant of peace that God brings to Isaiah's mind hundreds and hundreds of years later when the people of God need comfort and rest. This is that word that God brings to Isaiah's mind. This is what comes to Noah when God says, as a sign of this peace, a sign of what I have inaugurated, I will hang a rainbow in the sky. Except words are important, aren't they? And it actually doesn't say rainbow. We supply that word. Take a look at Genesis 9, verse 13. Look very closely. It doesn't say rainbow. It says bow. Just bow. And the Hebrew word for bow that we've translated rainbow, the Hebrew word actually is what we think of as a bow and arrow. It's a war bow. God says, I will set my war bow in the clouds. Now, it's as if God is using this word picture to say, you know, I once took aim on all of humanity, on all of creation. This violence of human upon human was so great, it broke my heart. And so I took aim at all of creation and I let the arrow fly. But I will never again do that. I have hung up that bow. Now, we can all picture, we actually saw one this morning. That glorious display of light and cover, color, Color it, it shelters the earth. But in this picture, if God had taken aim and then rotated that bow, where is it now facing? God is declaring that if there is ever punishment for human sin, righteous punishment, It is now pointed only and directly at heaven itself, at God himself. You see, God doesn't declare that he will never be angry again. That's called indifference. That's called abandonment and leaving us to our own devices, and God would never do that. He is a God of compassion, a God of love, who cannot wait to usher us into the reality of his peace. No, God doesn't say that he'll never be angry again. God says that he will never be angry at us like that ever again. In Isaiah's day, seventh and sixth centuries before Christ, the people of Jerusalem came to believe that they might have made God that mad again. And they actually had good reason to think this. In the years after King David's reign, after the glorious time of Israel as a nation, in the years, the ages that followed, God saw that His people, Israel and Judah, were no longer living the way He wanted them to. They were shamelessly worshiping idols, shamelessly worshiping false gods. They were perverting justice. They were showing no mercy or kindness to each other, much less to strangers and aliens. It broke God's heart. God had chosen this people through Abraham. He had established this people through Moses, through David, so that this people would be a light to all nations, so that all people would know this God know His character, know His heart, know His compassion. But as this image of God in His people started getting more and more blurred, more and more marred, God sent prophets to them to say, you cannot kid yourselves. This cannot go on forever. I will put an end to this. You see, this isn't a game for God. God isn't campaigning to be elected the best God among other gods. He's not campaigning to be the strongest among many other weak gods. God must be known clearly. God must be declared clearly because He is the only God. There are no other options. In Isaiah 44, 6, God says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So here in this period, the few hundred years after King David, there were empires that started to rise and started to fall, Egypt and Assyria, Babylonia and Persia. Israel had once been one of these great nations, a strong proud nation, it had always been a very tiny nation, and God had loved and cherished this very tiny nation situated right in the middle of these giant nations. God had always loved Israel. He always defended her. He always championed her, but now at this time, God lets these sleeping giants wake. He lets them start to shake the earth. He lets them start to have at each other with war. And right there in the middle is Israel. And he removes his hand of protection. The northern ten tribes known as Israel, where Samaria was the capital, are conquered by Assyria in 722 BC. They're carried off, never to be heard from again, the ten lost tribes of Israel. And now just two tribes remain, the tiniest two tribes, the smallest tribes which make up Judah, Jerusalem as her capital. Now they are literally surrounded, Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia. Can you hear the Judeans start to gasp for air? This is happening. Can you hear them try to fight to the surface to just take one more breathful of air? But then in one big wave, Jerusalem falls. The walls of the holy city of David are breached. The temple of God is destroyed. It's burned. Every stone cast down. And the people of Jerusalem are swept off in exile and slavery to Babylon. The physical, mental, and spiritual anguish of the Jews in exile was without limit, but maybe what was most haunting, most disturbing, where there would be no peace that could ever be found again was the possibility, this horrible realization, this possibility that God might be this angry with them forever. It's in this place of being haunted, of being that disturbed that God sends his prophet Isaiah to speak this word to his people. This is like the days of Noah to me. Just as I swore that the waters of Noah would never again go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed. Thus says the Lord who has compassion on you." A word of comfort, a word of peace, of rest. But if you were them, they're in exile in Babylon. Is that enough? And you're like, oh well, that's good, God, thank you. We're really glad for those people of Noah's time that this is like that for you. It's not like that for us. In the days of the flood, you gave them Noah. You showed them, you told them what salvation would be for humanity. Who have you given to us? Where does salvation come for us? I want you to open your Bibles We've been reading from Isaiah 54, but I want you to look just one chapter earlier. Isaiah 53. This is a vision that was given to the prophet Isaiah before the declaration that he made. This is what was on God's mind as the people in exile surely asked this question. Listen to what God had already prepared. Who has believed our report? And
2: to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him. And when we see him, there's nothing in his appearance that we should desire him.
3: He is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted.
2: But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all.
3: He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is silent so he opened not his mouth. Hmm. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who would declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken.
2: And they made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich. Although he had done no violence, Nor was there any deceit in his mouth.
3: Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand.
2: He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their inequities.
3: Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out himself unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and yet bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors and made intercession for the The transgressors. transgressors.
1: So what's all of this have to do with any of us today? This review of world history, this review of world governments, this review of Scripture, how does it touch our lives today? Do you know that one of the things that all of humanity maybe the only thing that all humanity has in common from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel, to Noah, to King David, to where we are now has been a desire for peace. It's always been just out there ahead of us. Sometimes we come into it like when we swim through water and there's a pocket of warm water but then it gets cold again. We have never had global peace and yet… It's as real to us as if we had experienced it, right? We all have some sense of this great peace of God. How can that be? How do we all know what it is without having experienced it as a race? It's because God's already established it. It is something real. It is something that we remember something that is before us, something that is behind us. Before the first drop of rain in Noah's flood fell, you were on God's mind. He knows how he will rescue you. Before the rising and falling of any kingdom of this earth, you were on God's mind. He knows how He will preserve you. In the midst of all the turbulence of this world, and even down to the rising and falling of your own breath, you are on God's mind. He knows how He will hold you in perfect peace. God will allow you to find yourself in deepest waters, so that His sin may, His grace may abound to you all the more that God may bless you all the more, that you may know Him as God and Jesus as Savior. God will allow it. God has established a covenant of peace with you. He has done it. And even as Drew was mentioning, God's covenant of peace, God's idea of shalom is so much bigger than anything that we can imagine. The shalom of God Completeness, wholeness, health, safety, prosperity, rest, harmony. Peace literally means to be complete, perfect, and full. And there's even a translation of the word that says it has to do with owing a debt that has been paid for you, peace. This is what God has established for you in Jesus Christ. It's in Ephesians 2.14 that it says, for He Himself is our peace, and surely the sign that God has given us of this new covenant, of this new age of humanity, without question, the cross of Christ, the war bow, what God has hung for us to see, for Him to remember, for us to know that we have peace. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, For I am God and there is no other. For I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. My purpose shall stand and I will fulfill my intention. May God's peace be with you now and forevermore. Let's pray. God, sometimes it is so hard for us to begin to imagine you. This God who stands outside of time, outside of space. This one who holds all of everything in you, present, past, future. All of our history, a drop in the bucket, all of our hopes so present to you, all of our needs, our deepest needs, our deepest longings fulfilled in you. God, we praise you and thank you for Scripture, that it is one story of one God We thank you for the words that bring us to an understanding, a deepened understanding of your movement through history and your movement in our lives. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, our one and only Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.